Today we conclude this first letter of John. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, we look at the concluding verse and his final exhortation, verse 21, in a sermon that I've so creatively titled, Keep Yourself from Idols. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for just for, for who you are and, and, and the amazing ways that you have condescended, humbled, graciously, sacrificially loved us. What Christ has done on the cross as we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper is just love that is beyond words. And what you have shown us that we would not be prideful or ungrateful short-sighted to not see the fullness of your love for us. That it would just it would just flood us, it would drown us. It would we would just truly be just caught up in the love that you have shown us in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. Shown us in the, the promise made at the fall through the generations and the keeping of your covenants. Lord, you are mighty to save, mightily at work here today in our lives, in lives around the world. Authoring life in conception today and birth. Authoring the finish of life in physical death today. For many, Lord, these are realities of this time, this place, this this temporary life we live. That you would do a spiritual work in us to mature us, to, to well us up with worship and fervor and passion for you. For my brothers and sisters in the room, Lord, if they have been stuck lately, if they've been caught up in worry or doubt, self-mindedness, pride, envy. Lord, just break in to our hearts and the work of the Holy Spirit and the truths of the Word to just reveal the trappings of our flesh, these sinful paths that we find ourselves to, that we would confess them and repent of them and, and cling to you and abide in you and trust you and enjoy you, enjoy you in the midst of the struggle and the strife and the hardship and the injustices that surround us. I thank you for these precious blood-bought brothers and sisters and our guests here today and the ways in which you are at work in us, in this little church, Disciples Church here in Bakersfield, California. 
Do your work in us mightily, not because we are mighty, but because you are. Help us to grab hold of all that you intend this simple verse to do in our lives today. Let us not tune out because we've studied idolatry. We've heard these things. No, let us lean in because you ordain in your word to speak of this again and again and again. We need it. We need it. Give us righteous submission to authority. Give us a cling to Christ above all else. It is because of his perfect mediation, the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray to you, Father. Amen. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Once again, John refers to his audience as little children. Right? These are adults, many of them. Constantly being referred to as children, little children. And so, how, how do they hear that? How do we hear that as we study this, as we consider those words? Why, why does God ordain that John spoke this way so often? And, and so I just pray, you know, in reviewing th- these words again, it, it would be good for you and, and us together. John uses this title, Little Children, for his blood-bought brothers and sisters who are reading this letter as a reflection of his affection for them, his family affection for them, and as a, a moment of truth-telling of his authoritative position over them. He's not looking to be demeaning. He's not looking to belittle them. Even with that understanding, it doesn't mean that we still might not struggle with this kind of language. So let's talk about it again real quick. We've all been in that position when someone who God has given authority over us, instructs us, leads us, directs us, looks to hold us accountable in ways we don't like, maybe in ways we kind of disagree with, or it's just not where we're at. And when this happens, and it will, it's important that we see God's good design and command on us to honor God-appointed authority in our lives. Even when our flesh struggles with it, doesn't like it. Our, Our humble submission to authority, church, is how we show reverence to Christ our Lord. Paul said this in Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is why we don't pick and choose. Well, I really respect and like these authorities in my life, so I'm going to really submit to them well, honorably. I really don't respect or like these other authorities God's put over me, so I'm not going to do that as well. No, no. We're going to respect and Honor them all, for that's how we show reverence to our Lord. What is submission? Submission is to submit is to line up under another. Biblical submission means a joyful, humble, wholehearted commitment to follow an appointed authority. 
When the Spirit is at work in us, we practice submission to God and God-given authorities that He has commanded us to submit to. When, when we do this, we show reverence to Christ. What does it mean to show reverence to Christ? To Reverence is, is a right fear, a high regard, a deep respect. We honor Christ as our Lord by submitting to those in authority that He's placed over us. What are the authorities God has placed over you? Well, some of that depends on who you are. The the command in Ephesians 5.21 sets up particular examples that Paul is going to speak to very specifically in Holy Scripture that we find in the later parts of, of that very letter to the Ephesians. Let me remind you of a few of those briefly. A big one, Ephesians 6.1, that children are to submit to their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And when you do, you show reverence to Christ, your Lord. In in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, servants are to submit to their masters. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. What falls under this one is really the most basic lines of human authority. It's what Paul says in Colossians 3.22, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You might not like your boss. Your boss might be a real piece of work. But you show reverence to Christ when you honor your boss. Submit to him or her, whoever that might be. So, it, the ways we see this play out in everyday life, uh, other ways to consider this. If you're a player on a team, you submit to your coach. You honor coach. Show respect. If you're a soldier in the military, you submit to your ranking officer. If you're an employee of a business, you submit to your boss. If you're a student of a school, you submit to your teacher. Also in Ephesians, we see in verse 22 of chapter 5, wives are to submit to their husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that husbands are are to submit to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3 I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of of Christ is God. We are to submit to Christ. Society is to submit to governing authorities. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Church members are to submit to the elders. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Think about that. That's a a unique clarity. You submit to your elders in such a way where there's joy in them leading you, not, not groaning. It's not drawn out. It's not hard. That's a priority. How Are you doing a good job submitting? Are they doing it with joy? He says, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
All believers are to submit to Christ. We see this throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 5.24, the church submits to Christ. James 4, 6, and 7, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Remember, God's word says that we are to honor those in authority over us unless what they are telling us to do is sinful or against God's will or command. Acts 5.29 and elsewhere. When John refers to those whom he has called to lead as little children, we need to see that it's proper. It's God honoring for him to exercise his leadership in his instruction, in his accountability for them in this way. Your flesh might not like the comparison of being a subordinate like a child, right? These are adults being likened to a child, and and we, too, can really not like that. But we must see that authoritative relationships are a reality in God's good economy. It is only our pride that rejects God's good design of parent-like leadership over the beloved in the church. So instead of pride and rebellion in our hearts, let may Christ in us bring forth true humility so that we would walk in childlike faith and obedience for the good things that God has designed for us just as we would righteously not tolerate our children to decide for themselves how they should act or which way they should go as it relates to sin and God's good commands, we need to honor those God has put over us as we aim to honor Him above all. And so I would just ask you take inventory of this. In God's sovereign purposing of this title used again now in the closing exhortation of the letter, Let it be another moment of good reflection for us. In what ways might you be guilty of not hearing or submitting to those God has rightly put over you? Your parents, your shepherds, your your husband, your bosses. Where is this true of you? And, And where it is, then let's be diligent to confess it as sin and do what honors God as we move forward. Grow in it. Seek accountability. Maybe seek some help. It is good and right that John would speak to and, and lead the beloved in this way. He's a good shepherd. He, he, he's been given an important role in the life of the kingdom. John's repeated use of this title for his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ is to convey deep love and affection for those in the family of God as he exercises his God-given authority to instruct and lead them in God's good truths and commands. We have been so blessed, church. 41 sermons, including today. This study of John's pastoral counsel in this letter. Praise God for that. May we submit ourselves to this final imperative command as we close our time with it. Look with me at verse 21. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. After capturing his love and authority for the beloved by using the title Little Children, he moves right into exercising that God-given authority to give an imperative command. Keep yourselves from idols. Do that. It's important. Out out of the blue almost, he, he just turns to this unique, simple statement in closing. This is his final words, how he finishes the letter. Right? Someone you really love maybe writes you a letter and they've maybe passed on. The final words you're ever going to hear from them. Heartfelt love and encouragement for you in this letter. Signs it with love. And then throws this P.S. on there. This added, just short, to the point, hey, also this. It's meant to pop. It's meant to stand out. It's meant to be taken seriously. It's so important that I need not omit it. It needs to be included. I've signed the letter. I've finished. Here's this. Don't miss this. It's, a, it's kind of what we have here. And, and as we read it, it, it feels maybe a little odd that John chooses this. But when we slow to it, I was well this morning, it's pertinent. And it's very pastoral. And this is because we have a lifelong fight with the sin of idolatry. Lifelong. It is one of the most central and consistent fights that we wage on a daily basis. Until God takes us to glory. So it is worthy of our consistent attention, growing, maturing in our understanding of it. When contemplating the importance of keeping ourselves from idols, we're quickly reminded of God's emphasis of this in the Ten Commandments. Right? Three of the ten have emphasis towards the sin of idolatry. It's how global they are in those ten. And most famously, the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Church, if we are going to take most seriously the command to keep ourselves from idols, we must slow to understand what is an idol and why it's so important we don't pursue them. To help us get started today, the Word of Truth Catechism is so very helpful to give us a simple definition of idolatry. It's, it's worth circling back to for those of us who have studied it a number of times. Church, is worth memorizing. What is the sin of idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. As we contemplate this clarity of what idolatry is, it it helps us to begin to see just how much of our life 
is threatened by sinful idolatry. So much so, idolatry makes war with the very reason why we are alive, why we're ordained to be by God. So let me show you what I mean by that. I want to look at another quick catechism question and answer, the Word of Truth Catechism, question 15. Why did God make us? God made us to glorify Him so that He would be known and praised. In the Psalms, throughout Scripture, but in the Psalms, we're given some wonderful proclamations that that God is the all-satisfying object. What is most satisfying? It, It is not anything in the creation. It is God Himself. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 63.1 O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In the ways that we are intended to be satisfied, in the ways we are intended to be purposed, it is God, not His creation. The water of His creation although it very very specifically is designed to quench our thirst and fuel our bodies, is so second-rate compared to the quenching, the satisfaction of God to our lives. God's Word is clear to say all things exist for His glory. Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, it's a very all-inclusive statement. Do it all for the glory of God. The problem is in our fleshly fight with sin, we we exchange the glory of God and the satisfaction that He best provides for counterfeits, for replicas, for cheap, second-rate pleasures in comparison. Scripture says that our most epic failure in our sin is to exchange the glory and satisfaction of the Creator and to pursue glory and satisfaction in the creation the created. In this gross misstep, we heap our worship, our deepest affections, on them instead of on Him. And this is the epic failure of idolatry. And it's one of the most poignant and daily temptations we face in this life. any of those junctions of your day where where you're caught up to say I need this is an exchange that is so failed you need God and can do so well without so many other things right right 
Beloved, little children, we must keep ourselves from idols. Or as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. 1 Corinthians 10.14 some of you might be thinking this morning, I, I, if we got this, can we just go? I don't worship idols. I don't have an altar in my house. Right? And, and you think that because you don't understand the depth of idolatry. The, 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 the plethora of idols that are constantly around you. That your heart is constantly considering making them an idol of the heart. When someone says idol worship or idolatry, what is most commonly thought of is uh, a, a figure made of stone or wood. They picture someone prostrate on the ground and before an object of religious devotion or assumed magical power. And while that is idolatry, surely, it is so much more than this. One author said it well, I love this quote, we have an effect, in thinking this way, distanced ourselves from the whole idea of idolatry. I mean, even before I finish reading the quote, how often are you even talking about idolatry? Because for those of you who have walked with us for any length of time, you've come to understand we actually talk about idolatry quite a bit. Not just in our teaching or preaching, but just in our daily lives. We're constantly trying to identify idols of the heart. Expose them. Call them out. Make war with them. Replace them with a greater affection for Christ. So we can't distance ourselves from the, from the idea of idolatry, but many have. And they do it by pushing it out to the extreme culture, to the psychological margins of life. This is for tribal people. This is for religious wackos who, who do idolatry. I don't, my family, we're good. We, we don't have that in our house. Many don't see idolatry in our modern culture because they only think of it in this extreme way. Maybe one might refer to idolatry in some kind of real obsession with money or a person they idolize, right? When you see fans of a, you know, a sport or a, or a rock star and people are like crying, they're falling on the ground, and, you know. Okay, there's a problem here. And so in this, many just don't really ever slow to think of idolatry. To consider it, where it's present, where it's tempting, where it's, where it's doing real damage in our lives. Where we've let it in, God is not being honored, which is the grossest part of that. But then, therefore, the consequences it reaps in our lives. So pretty, pretty dramatic, hard. 
Idolatry is very real, church. It's, it's very normal in our modern context. It causes way more wreckage than the average person really knows how to identify or see. And I pray our look at idolatry today is helpful for you to take it serious, to take serious inventory of your life so that you can heed this exhortation to keep yourself from idols. The fact is, you and I are created to worship the living God. Be satisfied in Him. Our worship of God is not meant to be routine or heartless exaltation. It's meant to be an overflow of our satisfied hearts in knowing God rightly. An overflow of our redeemed relationship with Him through Christ our Savior and our Lord. Right? There's... So it's not just something we like put on. It, it, it is a, a response to what he has done to, to bring us near. We have a right relationship with God. Only then do we understand who we are and then righteously shore up our identity, our personal significance, our sense of security, our purpose for living. And find our hope, our happiness, our joy in Him. The problem is, when sin is at work in our lives, we tragically betray our relationship with God. And instead of turning Godward, abiding in Him, remaining in Him, as we've seen so often emphasized in this letter... We turn to other things. We, we look for help, reprieve, escape, identity, a, a new, better season in horizontal adjustments. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, instead of turning Godward in our sin, we turn away from God. And as a result, we don't honor Him as God. Romans 1.21 Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. I, I just There is just a good, simple test for me that has served me really well. And just my own evaluation of my life and my days. Is there a consistent just gratefulness in me? Is that, is that my disposition? Not, not because I'm wired that way. Some of you might be thinking, Josh, you're kind of wired that way. I'm not really not. No, no, no. Not because of that, but because of who Christ is in my life. That that thankfulness doesn't run out. I have a lot to be thankful for. And that comes out of me. In our sin, we cease to see God as fundamental, as essential for the existence and fulfillment of our lives. And so we don't then only turn away from Him, we find something else to put in His place. Romans one twenty five. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Because God designed us to worship, 
we will worship. If not him, something. Something else. In our sin, when we turn away from God, we find substitutes to heap our worship. These become the idols of our life. In this simple but tragic exchange, we look to something other than God to give us then our identity, meaning, significance, purpose, security, hope, joy. G.K. Chesterton said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. And these substitutes become our idols. Again, idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. Therefore, your idols are anything that have become more fundamental to you than God in your life for your hope, identity, significance, purpose, security, joy, and on and on. This means your idols are then likely not carved blocks of wood or shiny metal statues, but they're people. They're really precious people to you. They're places that you really love. Maybe a house. Maybe maybe a car. Maybe maybe a team. Maybe maybe hopes that you have. Maybe there are ideas. Maybe maybe some different kinds of pleasure. Maybe a political party. This is what we must slow to do business with. When John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Notice it's not idol. It's not an idol. It's idols. It's plural. It means this sin problem is bigger, deeper, wider than maybe we think or really have in view. All the more reason why we slow to take it so seriously it is in this that we start to really see why John stops to make this straightforward command to close his letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He spent a lot of time so far in this letter talking about perverted speakers, false teachers, heretics, people who are looking to, to scheme and, and break down and break in with lies and deceptions. He spent a lot of time contrasting truth and lies. Those who belong to Christ and those who don't. So but as important as that warfare, that identity, that understanding is, he's, he's saying, here's this too. These are enemies knocking on your door in a big way. We must be attentive here. Church, when God said in the first commandment, 
you shall have no other gods before me. He's saying don't make anything more necessary or fundamental or valuable to you than me. Keep me as your hope, your identity. And so you begin to break into that. Like, what else have I hoped in? And then that's breaking down, leaving me, betraying me, walking. Am I out of hope? No, because my hope is in Christ. What about my identity? These things that, that I once felt kind of girded me up, and this was a big part of who I am. If I lost that, did I lose my identity? I mean, I could go around the room, right, and pick things that, that you really love, that, you, that people really identify you with. And let's say that stops today. Can't do it anymore. Can't have it. Did you lose your identity? Not if your identity is in Christ. Your significance, what makes you important. A lot of, I know a lot of you really struggle with that. You've had a lifetime of battling that, expectations of parents and others around you, what the world has been trying to sell you about, what makes you important but in Christ you have to put that noise off you find your significance in him God elected you save you make you his eternally to feast with him what makes you more important than that not nothing Everything else you would count as your significance is so lame compared to that. So you have to let that reinstruct your thinking and, and, and your pursuit, and your purpose of your days. We, we are creatures of habit, and so when we find like we are accomplishing some good purpose in different areas of our lives, and that really starts to click and, and work. We, okay, feel good about that. But then if that's messed with or undone or taken away, or are, are you all of a sudden without purpose? I would argue that a saved Christian with, with no belongings in his or her bag or hardly a shirt or shorts on their back, no money in the bank, no family to care for, a sign to wake up and live on this rock today has amazing God-assigned purpose, if I see it rightly. in a coma can't talk can't testify can't share can't hold is that believer 
who by God's sovereignty is kept alive for another day without purpose? No. No. But do we see that rightly? We need to. We need to keep ourselves from idols. Security, are you, are you guilty of just constantly scrambling for new levels of horizontal security? <laughs> Why are we always scrambling for that? Because the things we thought once had us secure keep letting us down. Keep getting sick. People keep getting to our money. Stuff keeps breaking down. Have all the ammunition in the world and the gun doesn't work. Whatever. The Lord, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Is saying, I am to be your hope, your identity, your significance, your purpose, your security. Love me. Trust me. Enjoy me. Worship me. Me. And in this we begin to see just how much all of our sin is linked to idolatry. And the ways we kind of don't count Him as enough. Martin Luther said it famously, and it's ministered to me well over the years. You've heard it from me. Every breaking of the commandments at its core is a breaking of this first commandment. What does he mean by that? And I want to just show you again quickly. Why do we lie? Do not lie. Why do, why do we lie? Because I, I want the approval of something. So I lie to have it. Or, or I want the thing, the lie, gets me to make me happy or to fulfill me. Essentially replacing what God is meant to be for me. It's idolatry. Why do I steal? Because I think I need that. I'm going to steal it. We steal stupid stuff, right? Are you growingly aware of just the little things that you steal that we are constantly brushing off as no big deal? And if I really do business with that, then how cheap my, how quick my replacement of God being my satisfaction is. Why do I covet or envy? Because I think if I had that, I'd be happy. It would satisfy me. And, I, and in that, I'm replacing what God is meant to be for me. And, and when this doesn't go well, when you think you need something and you're not getting it, we can get really undone. We can get really sideways in life. The plague of idolatry for us is major. Consequences are disastrous. And so this all then helps us bring to light something that's really important to understand, and that is that an idol, in its essence, is not necessarily something evil. It is commonly for us something that's very good. A good gift of God that we've turned into an idol. 
Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We're quick to see why covetousness is idolatry, but we miss the deeper understanding of what's meant by evil desires. That, If you've studied with me, you know evil desires there. The Greek word is epithumia. It is both an evil desire, but it also can be an over or an excessive desire for something good. Therein lies what makes it evil, what makes it wicked, what makes it sinful. And I have an over-desire for something good. The misplaced desire. This is essentially addiction or lust for something good that God has made and entrusted to you. you got to have it. It's not the thing or the person in and of themselves that's the problem. It's allowing it to have lordship in your life. To become your everything. To become your precious. My precious. It, it, it plays so well if you know the movie. Because I want you to remember how wrecked that dude is. He's in bad shape. All because of idolatry for an item. This is referring to Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. John Calvin says, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. So then often our idols are good things. And the evil, the sin in it, is in the lordship of that thing in your life. And so this is where our kids can be Disastrous idols in our lives. Our spouse, our careers, our, our grades, our looks, our health. We are commanded to be good stewards of these things. But at the end of the day, our lives belong to the Lord. Unless the Lord intervenes, my, my father, who I love, the young age of 73, is dying. I don't know if I know anyone who has stewarded his health better. Remained in good shape, stayed active, ate nutrients, and on and on. But in God's sovereignty, it looks to be, unless God intervenes, that his days that were numbered before they began are coming to an end. Christ must be his everything, his hope, his identity, his joy. He's over clinging to 
the investment he's made into his health, he's going to be wrecked. He's going to miss a moment of shining that gospel testimony in these last days. Our beloved sister, Lisa, just a week ago, suddenly lost her husband, Alan, our brother, member of our church, to a heart attack. Just dead, just gone. Without any preparation, she now is a widow. And while we are to have a deep oneness with our spouse, love, affection, they can't be what only God is meant to be to us. She still has her identity and her significance and her purpose and her joy in Christ. Your, your idols of your life can be very good things, wonderful things, blessed things that we've simply inflated to really worship or find hope or identity or significance or purpose or security in them rather than in God, our Creator. And, and there's the demise. There's where we've been duped. There's the deception. Idolatry happens when you and I try to find our identity, personal significance, sense of security, purpose for living, happiness, and joy in these things, in these people, in these status, instead of in the Lord. Our sin pursues pleasure, worshiping God's creation and not in God. And so the idol factory goes to work. It's another famous John Calvin quote, 17th century Genevan reformer said, our hearts are idol factories, and our words and actions are shaped by the pursuit of things our heart craves. So once again, I return to something in the, in the way I try to really walk this out and need your prayer and your encouragement, your accountability in my life, that, that I really am satisfied, I really am content, I really am thankful, I'm joyful to have Christ and I'm not the guy that you're constantly finding, complaining, head down, beef here, problem here, chasing this, chasing that. That the, there is this radical, even this temper that is there. And, and, but we don't, you don't just do that naturally. This is the journey. This is keeping ourselves from idols. It's identifying them. It's being loved by the Word, being loved by each other to be reoriented to these things. We do that together. Turn to the Old Testament book, Isaiah. Old, Old Testament. Let's look at chapter 44 to begin with. Let me show you some Old text, Testament context for idolatry that's good for us this morning. Read the larger portion of this text and just Follow along with me. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? 
Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar. The rain nourishes it. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. The other half he eats over the half he eats meat he roasts it and is satisfied he warms himself and says ah I'm warm I have, I have seen the fire and the rest of it he makes into a god his idol falls down to worship it he prays to it and says deliver me for you are my god this is a description of fallen man This is a description of daily life outside of knowing Christ. Looking to make good use of the days and the things that we have. Trying to find purpose and joy and satisfaction in these things. Verse 18, They know not, nor do they discern, For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes and A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Oh, how desperate we are for illumination. Spiritual eyes to see, ears to hear. What is truth? What is life? What is worthy of our worship? We exist for worship. Our worship is to be put on God and not on the created things of God. If we do put it on the created things of God, we are surely destined to be unsatisfied, let down, frustrated, foolhearted as we chase fleeting things to be our foundation for living. The root of our demise in these things is a Sinful factory producing one idol after another. Oh, how we need a Savior who can set us free so that we might truly be satisfied in the only one who can satisfy and who is worthy of our eternal praise. 
Realize that any, any worldview, any family tradition, any man-made religion is lying to you when it says you can save yourself by trying really hard to shut down the idol factory of your life. Only one person can do this for us. Turn with me back just a few chapters to Isaiah 42. You're in Isaiah 44. Flip back a couple of pages, Isaiah 42. Look at verses 5 through 8. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Church, who is the one who, put air, who puts air in your lungs? Who is the one who sets us in motion, who numbers our days, who made everything around us so that it might all point us to Him, to cause us to revel and worship and enjoy Him. It is God who does this. We need to see these lives, these bodies, these relationships, these skills, these, these days. This is His, entrusted to us to be stewarded for Him and not make it mine or I would cling to it in such a way that I would, I would turn from Him. Who can set us free? Who can satisfy your deepest longings? Yahweh, God. Only Him. Only our Lord and Savior. Look at the next few verses, Isaiah 42, 6-8. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The idol factories in us got to be closed. We're going to keep ourselves from idols. And the good news is, we have the power to fight this fight. We were enslaved to our idol worship, but Jesus, amen? Jesus intervened. Jesus saved us. This is the gospel good news of what only Jesus does for His elect. Jesus is the one and the only one who can answer our idolatry problem. And how does He do that? By giving you Himself. You must see, Christian, you have what you need in Him. He's not the means to getting where you need to go. It is Him who rightly replaces your evil affections for His created or your over-affections for His created. It is Him. 
how does Jesus do this? By giving us himself, by giving us the expulsive power of a greater affection. The late Thomas Chalmers said, well, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. You will find a place in your heart to seek beauty and joy. You don't just get rid of that. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Meaning you don't just get to a place where you get rid of all the idols and then you just sit. No, no, God wired you, He created you to worship, to be satisfied. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so that, that is your story. You've gone from one thing you chased in one season of your life, the thing you thought you needed, if I only had this, then I'm going to be so good. Right? A pair of shoes, a bike, a, a girl or a boy we thought we liked, a car, a job. I mean, just go through your life. Kids, grandkids, whatever the stuff is. We, we kick one out and we put another one in its place. And then, and or when, God ordains to save you and give you Christ. We have a greater affection that's better than them all. The idols of the heart cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. The question is replaced with what? The only thing that can ultimately satisfy and bring joy and life and identity and security and purpose to your life is Jesus. This is why here at Disciples Church we love the law of God. And we'll call each other to obedience, as God has called us to. But we know that the law cannot save us. We know that the law points us to our need for Jesus. We know that the gospel is the thing that brings true God-glorifying change, transformation, righteousness. This is why, and get this, new disciplines or helpful habits don't cure the deepest needs of your pain, struggle, longing, your idolatry. Only the expulsive power of a bigger or better target for your affections can eliminate the failed idols of the heart that you've tried to cling to. This is why we aim to focus on constantly stirring our affections towards Christ alone. The aim is to fall more deeply in love with Him. This is my prayer for you this morning at the Lord's Supper, church. Praying for you in advance that you wouldn't just fly through that in any kind of normal way, but There'd be this, this deep 
stirring in you of gratitude, of awe, of what God has done to save you. It captures you. It moves you. The key to being rid of our idols, to keep ourselves from idols, is not merely to love them less, but to love Christ more. Or for some of you in the room, to love Christ, period. And salvation. For you, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. You have no life. You have no hope without him. May Jesus be your ultimate treasure and prize. If the heart is truly taken by Jesus, our clinch on the created will be adjusted rightly, righteously. We still love the good things deeply. We still steward our days well, but they don't define us. They're not our joy, our motivation, our prize, our security. He is. And when we treasure Jesus above all else, we can begin to better spot idolatry temptations, make war with them, and we'll joyfully hear from our brothers and sisters when being loved to maybe identify where those things exist. I pray that for you, that your first response is not to be combative, is, is not to, to, to make excuses, is to lean in and say, you, you're trying to love me right now. I want to hear what, what you're trying to share to maybe see something that I don't see. Now let me just ask you in closing this morning, what are you finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, security in other than God, your creator? What good things, spouse, kids, job, money, looks, health, are you over-clinging to? We need Christ to be our greatest love, to be on the altar of our heart so that then everything else is rightly pursued, held, stewarded. And then if and when those things leave us, break on us, are stolen from us, or God calls them home, or not undone. I have Christ. Our worship, our hope, our identity, our significance, our purpose, our security is not in what God created, but in God our Creator. This is how we keep ourselves from idols by remaining fixed in Christ. None of those things 
watch this, can die for you and remain your joy. Even if they were willing to do that, they would be dead. You would likely be devastated. Only Jesus loved you, died for you, rose to victory for you. Only in the power of Christ do we keep ourselves from idols. By his grace and for his glory, may it be so. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this day to gather, to slow down the machinery, all the stuff, and to lean into your word, to lean into just a few words at the closing remarks of this letter that has blessed us for 40 weeks prior to today. We thank you for um, your giving us endurance, for, for providing this opportunity to gather without um, fear of persecution, to, to have these Sunday mornings to study together, to pursue these truths that they are really at work in us and really growing us and moving us for your glory and for others' good. This belongs to you, all of it. Thank you, Lord, for including us, loving us, making us yours. Thankful for the work you'll do in the coming hours and days as a result of today and the work that we will do to be doers and not hearers only. Cling to you and have that expulsive power really go to work. Hear us now as we as we worship you, as we wait on you, as we trust in you with all that's before us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.